Welcome to the Longevity Week podcast, hosted by the Longevity Forum. We'll be featuring podcasts all week on the theme, Sustainability in a Decade of Healthy Aging, which you can listen to online at thelongevityforum.com. This episode is a special podcast session featuring a conversation between Declan Dugan, Chief Medical Officer of Juvenescence, and world-renowned scientist and centenarian James Lovelock. James Lovelock is an environmentalist and futurist. He is best well known for proposing the Gaia hypothesis and has authored several books. From inventing the microwave to consulting for NASA space projects, James has been a pioneer of our age and we are proud to award him the Longevity Forum Person of the Year Award for 2021. What is your avocation or is it just quotes thinking? Well, uh, I always emulated, or tried to emulate, uh, our scientist Faraday, <laughs> way back when. Yeah. Now, as you well know, he had virtually zero education. And uh, I didn't do very well at school, or university come to that, and uh, because I couldn't be bothered with it. Right. I wanted to get on and uh, invent things and apply them to practical problems. And uh, I didn't care what the problem was. My first employer was the British Medical Research Council. And they kept me for 20 years and I resigned at the end of it when I got this letter from Abe Silverstein. Right. Fascinating. And then you talk about um, linear thinking versus systems thinking, which is it's so um, appropriate for biology and cellular physiology and biology. Did that come to you later, or, or were you educated in linear thinking, cause and effect? I never thought of it in such specific terms. It was much more... Uh, well, I'll give you, tell you how it all happened. I, I was at the time, the problem I'd been given was to find out what was the nature of damage caused by freezing. And uh, we, we, together with a biologist, a lady called Audrey Smith, uh, she was a really talented person. We managed to freeze a, a golden hamster, solid, so that it was like a lump of block of ice if you dropped it on the bench. And I remember you saying that, what was it, biologists are cruel. That's right. <laughs> and you could bring it back to life. Not only bring it back to life, but it hadn't lost its memory. Yeah. And, uh, that, but that was the only animal you could do it with. There wasn't anything else. Fascinating. Only animal. You couldn't do it with a rabbit or... That's right. Galagi, we tried um, rabbits. Uh, rats, all sorts, none, all, and then I I worked out the um, maths of it, and it and published it in a paper in the New York Academy of Sciences. I didn't care what the problem was scientifically, as long as there, it was interesting, and uh, it was a challenge, and uh, that's what inventors do. I'm yes, sure exactly. Faraday or Edison would have told you that sort of thing. I'm just interested in one thing that I'm looking at here. 1948, handkerchiefs in the transfer of respiratory infection. 
Yes, well, that my first... <laughs> yes, indeed. My first job was to go working in the tube shelters in London, because that was during the Blitz, and because they were afraid that in the very crowded conditions of the tube shelters, there's a real danger of a major epidemic starting and spreading. And uh, we had all sorts of microbiological sampling instruments down there, and I spent time doing that. And and you, did you conclude that, as today, that masking or the equivalent thereof might help? Because around about that time there was lots of infection, uh, there was tuberculosis and That's other right. bacterial infections. Absolutely. And uh, we were able to stop a hefty epidemic of hemolytic streptococci in a hospital ward, for all coming from a single carrier who was had the organisms in his nose. And uh, an nasal, he was a nasal carrier. The room was absolutely saturated with hemolytic streptococci. And me and my colleague were breathing them, but we must have been resistant. Yes, of course. But anyway, it's an interesting thought that you were dealing with this well, that's how I started in that, that particular field and stayed with it and then moved to the Common Cold Research Laboratory which Harvard University kindly, there was a, a hospital built for US servicemen during World War II near the town of Salisbury in Britain and uh, at the end of the war Harvard University kindly donated it on one condition only that it was used as a research establishment right. uh, for infectious diseases. And the Brits, with great cunning, thought, well, why not the common cold? It loses a lot of hours of work right. and all that. And so the common cold research unit was started up, and nice. I was sent there. Did you think at the time when you were at the common cold research laboratory that there would be a, an invention that would cure the common cold? Not really, no. Because? Um, uh, I thought that curing the common cold would almost certainly be a skilled application of virology, of knowing what, what uh, vaccine or something to make. That, that wasn't my thing. But I wanted to know how it spread right. and what one could do about that. And hence that paper right. on handkerchiefs, because that uh, it, it always seemed, you, you, we travelled in tube trains watching the habits of people to see which was the more likely way of spreading the disease. And uh, you watch them with their handkerchiefs and <laughs> I just shook my head and it was just asking for trouble. And we measured how many bugs were, were put in the air by, or bacteria carrying particles were put in the air by shaking handkerchiefs. And it was formidable. I'm sure, I'm sure. But the maximum transfer occurred from the straps that the people caught hold of, because the fingers would be covered with secretion. They'd go up, hold it, and transfer it. And roughly speaking, you got milligrams at most transferred by rapid. Um, Aerosol, droplet aerosol droplet, yeah. But, but up to uh, hundreds or tens of milligrams transferred as direct secretion. 
and uh, this and we then did an experiment with volunteers. We got volunteers across one side of a room and a big blanket in between uh, so that uh, any airborne stuff would go across and uh, we put children who were, no sorry, children on the reception side and volunteers who had colds on the other side and uh, then saw how much transfer occurred. And uh, airborne, those virtually never, never got any. Uh, direct droplet transfer, a few, but contact, we got the kids playing cards with the, mm -hmm. uh, the or it was 100% nearly. And that's in the Lancet somewhere. It'll be in that list. Yes, I'm going to pull that out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So can I, can I just fast forward to today's world in terms of your views on how we, how we live from a medical perspective? I know that we're, we're talking about increased life expectancy and you're a, a wonderful exemplar of that. Well, I'm not, as far as medicine goes, nearly every illness I've had has been iatrogenic. Oops. I was very healthy up until about 50, I think. I'm bad at dates, but it doesn't matter anyway. Up until about 50, when I got an angina uh, at a Gordon conference in America, I think it was, and uh, uh, saw the necessary physicians and things. And in no time, I was finding myself in a hospital ward in uh, London, uh, King's College Hospital, uh, due to be, have open heart surgery, because that was before the days of stents. Stent, yeah. And uh, I, I duly had it, and it was fine. The, the surgeon was first class, did a first class job, and I st it's still, was, I've had nothing further done. No stents, no nothing. So it was a really good job he did. Um, you may be interested. Uh, if, you, if you go independent as a scientist, you have to have at least five customers. Well, I mean, some customer, when you've answered a question like that detector, will turn around and say, oh, thank you very much, we've paid you now, uh, goodbye. Uh, and so you've got to have about five going all the time, and then the, the attrition with time <laughs> looks after it. And one of the custom, my customers was MI6. <laughs> and here is a, a letter of thanks I got from the James Bonds's boss. He's wow. now called C, not M. Vauxhall Cross London. Congratulations on your hundred. Uh, we can we can greatly we are greatly in your debt for the work you have done and the way in which it still supports our operations. The fact that this work is of seminal importance in understanding climate change means that I can th thank you as well as a citizen and occupant of this planet. You will find a couple of small gifts with this note as tokens of our gratitude and admiration. Wishing your future good health and intellectual creativity, C. <laughs> and that's yes. the person who ran... There are not too many people get those. And with an envelope that says 
Top well, that, that, that it didn't come in that. If it had come in that, I couldn't have shown you. I would other have, things, did. or I would have had to sign the official secret act before I walked in the door. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you know I've calculated? I've brought in in funds into my country ten times more than I'm taken taken from it to do my science. Interesting. The few university people could make such a thing. Wonderful. That's also an achievement. If only you could have had a small percentage of that for yourself. Yes. <laughs> well, obviously. Thank you very much. Tell me, did you ever meet Einstein? No, I didn't. Um, let me see. Uh, no, I didn't. None of the... None of, uh, the ones I met were Blackett, he was my physics professor, professor. Um, uh, at Manchester University and uh, several other. In fact, the National Institute where I first worked uh, was, well I wouldn't say disgraced, but mine was the only laboratory along the third floor that didn't get a Nobel Prize. Wow. It's not often known that that electron capture detector that I uh, oh, could, you oh, saw you there. Yes. So we could just have a look at um, it. Springs come off. You've broken it. No. Oh, no, no. <laughs> that was used by the EPA, or a copy of it was used by the EPA in approving Rachel Carson's allegations about the pesticides correct. Before it existed, it was quite impossible to measure small amounts of DDT and deodorant and other compounds. And that, that um, gadget, if I can call it such yeah. a, a poor word, that would actually detect the amount of um, DDT in the atmosphere? It's a strange thing. It detects far more easily poisonous things than harmless ones. And its sensitivity is extreme. It'll de it detects part less, much less than parts per trillion. Jesus. Extraordinary. And Extraordinary. Not being uh, a chemist and or a physicist. It all started because Archer Martin, the inventor of gas chromatography, said to me, I wish someone would invent a more sensitive detector for me. And in two weeks, I'll come back with two of them. Um, one that looked like this, that was called the argon detector, and set gas chromatography up. The manufacturers made instruments incorporating it all over the world. And, uh, and this one, which was by far the most sensitive. A couple of questions of interest to me is when are people at their most creative and innovative? When they're born I suppose. I think it's you're born that way. Uh, it, whether it's interesting or not, two of the surgeons at uh, the hospital here got interested in how I seem to be surviving the attentions of their... Despite them. <laughs> and uh, sent, took my DNA and sent it for analysis. And they came back with a very extraordinary answer. Uh, they said that um, 
my DNA showed a descent, not from Eve, as on the mitochondrial line, yes. as most, most of us are, but from Ursula, a female that lived some uh, 20,000 years earlier than that. So you're an old soul. Hmm? You're an old soul. Ilse, uh, her name was Ursula. Ursula, yeah. Yeah, like after the bear, presumably. And uh, I don't know whether that's of any significance or not, but that's what they told me. We should probably do a study looking at that factor and how it predicts for not only longevity but also creativity and look at the other great inventors of the time yes. to see if that is indeed uh, a predictor of, of uh, capacity for invention. I wouldn't know. All I know, I always... And it, people don't understand invention. Uh, what you never sort of get your ideas together in your mind and produce an invention. It doesn't work like that. It's, it depends on someone saying, I wish someone would invent something like this. And suddenly your mind goes to work. But you talk in the book about intuition being a very it, well, important piece. It, it would piece. be, yes. It's a form of intuition. But it doesn't come by putting thoughts together or from, uh, from the, one's history. It comes suddenly, out of the blue, as if someone were telling you. I mean, that, the proof of that is that and one other just as useful device was produced in two weeks on response to Archer Martin's comment, I wish someone would invent. So what does your normal day look like apart from walking on the beach, the beach road here? What, what is? Your normal day, are you? Oh, uh, the normal day is not getting up very early because Sandy likes to sleep in. Because uh, I work hard. Uh, we get, I get up about 7.30 to 8. Get my own breakfast. Yeah. Um, then, then Santa gets up and appears a bit later. About 7 o'clock for tea is, is really the right place. And uh, uh, by which time we're ready to go for a walk. And we usually go for a walk together along the road. And uh, sometimes Sandy's younger than me, so she climbs the hill as well. My goodness. Well, it's, it's, it's medicine, isn't it? Or it's prevention. Abs absolutely right. And not overeating. Those are the two things. I think it, you've the most got to use your mind. You've got to use your mind, your muscle. And, uh, there is a most amazing assortment of botanical things along here. Wildflowers that are rare elsewhere in the nation. And uh, it's wonderful to see them coming out in their turn, one by one. Um, things like various forms of orchid and uh, uh, various things like the uh, Mechanopsis, the Welsh poppy. Mm. Yes. Um, oh, a whole range of them to see. Magic. And of course the sea. One serious question is, what role does optimism play in your longevity? A big one, I think, because uh, it was quite strange. When I reached 100, I thought, you know, well, that's, that's the end. There's nothing more to really look forward to. And quite suddenly, a few days later, 
I felt a great contentment. I thought, oh, it's not so bad after all. And <laughs> it's been first, like that ever since. after a hundred. <laughs> Fantastic. I do, I do think, just in, in general, that the people I know of significantly advanced years, many of them do display that characteristic of real optimism and the ability with, to withstand difficulties. This broadcast has been brought to you by the Longevity Forum as part of Longevity Week 2021. We are very grateful to our sponsors, Juvenescence and Burnbrae. For more podcasts, visit our website, thelongevityforum.com, or follow us on Twitter, longevity underscore forum.